If you have small children, you've probably had a scenario or many scenarios where they, they fall over and they kind, of, they kind of bump their head or something and they look to you to see if they're okay. Right? And your response is going to determine the level of their emotion. And this happens all the time, they fall, they, especially when they're learning to walk. Bonk, and then they, and they look at you. And, uh, and then you learn very quickly as a parent. But if, after they fall over, they look at you, and you go, oh, hey, it's all right, you're okay. Then the kid's like, I'm okay, I'm all right. They just kind of mirror your... But then if you, uh, they, they fall down, and they look at you, and, and you go, oh, my goodness, oh, oh, it's game over. The child is crying, is freaking out, right? And we, all of us who, who've parented children, we, you know, we know this. And, you know, the gospel is like that quite a bit, that we go through life and things happen to us, and, and every time we look to God to, to see if we're okay, he's never, ever jumping off the throne, freaking out about what's going on in our life. It, there's there's even, the, even the tragic things, the horrible things. Right? I mean, this is where the analogy breaks down. Because if your child just falls over and has a little boo-boo, you're just going to go, hey, it's okay. You know, but if your child, you know, runs into the street and, uh, you know, and, and uh, they, they get hit by a kid on a bike and they fall down and it looks like their arm's broken and there's, you know, and, and you're not going to just go, it's okay. So the, the analogy is now officially over. But w- w- what we need to understand is regardless of what is occurring in our lives, no matter how tragic, when we look to the father, he's never jumping off the throne freaking out. And there's something in that. There is a freedom of great peace that the gospel affords us that we're going to be looking at today. Even Jesus says in John chapter 11, in verses 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, will live. So you know that even death isn't making the Father jump off the throne and freak out, which as humans we can't understand, because for us, death is the worst possible scenario. I mean, there's nothing worse than death for us humans. But as far as the Father is concerned, death doesn't even make him bad an eyelash. So if that is objectively true, how do we experientially rest and revel in that kind of freedom, that kind of grace, when you and I, day in and day out, in the comings and goings of our lives, are dealing with all kinds of things that that range from boo-boos to tragedy in our lives and so we're going to take a look at this great grace because if god is indeed inviting us and offering that kind of freedom in the gospel of jesus christ which he is that when all hell is breaking loose we can have this humble confidence this unexplainable peace this indestructible hope even in the middle of our tears how do we live our lives and enjoy the freedom of that great that grace. We're going to go this morning to Philippians chapter 4. Now the Apostle Paul, as we read this text in Philippians 4, he knew that God's grace was objectively true. He knew that what Christ did at the cross for his sin was objectively true. He knew the implications of Christ's resurrection and ascension were objectively true. He knew that because he had seen the risen Christ, And he knew that the implications of that meant that death wasn't the end for him. All of those things were objectively true. But beyond just an intellectual enterprise of like knowing something in his head, knowing that this was true, Paul actually experienced it as true. 
He experienced it as true because he starts all of his letters. Here's a little clue. He starts all of his letters with grace and peace because grace is what the gospel is for you and peace is what the gospel gives to you regardless of what it is that you're going through. And Paul's an authority on having horrible things happen to him. So there's something about the objective truth of grace that Paul knows experientially. And so we're going to look at this gospel freedom today. The last two weeks, we looked at gospel freedom as it frees us from being a slave to the sin inside us. And this morning, we're going to look at how we have freedom from the circumstances that surround us, from being slaves, slaves to those. Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 4 to 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've received your concern for me, You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned that in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to to abound. In, In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is God's word. As we unpack this text this morning, we're going to ask two questions. The first question we're going to ask the scriptures is, what does the peace of God actually do? And secondly, how do we enjoy that peace? And as we look at those two questions, here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that God carries us through the anxiety of life's trials by giving us peace that passes all understanding. So first of all, what does the peace of God do? When you look at verses 4 and 5, you find that united to Christ, the peace that's described here, it's powerful enough to thrive in the midst of turmoil. The peace of God is not so weak and fragile that everything actually has to be going well in your life to have the peace. It's actually counterintuitive to our conversations and culture about peace, which is the absence, essentially, of conflict. But what God is actually offering in the gospel, what Paul has discovered, is that actually when everything is on fire, I found the secret to having peace of God through his grace and the rest of the gospel of Christ in the middle of this. And that's what we see, that God's grace, it actually aggressively invites us out of anxiety. Look at the language that Paul uses. It's pretty strong. He says this thing that is hard for us to wrap our minds around. He says, don't be anxious. How's that possible? He just says it. He says, don't be anxious. Is Paul being insensitive? Is he he being cheap? Is he giving trite advice? Is Paul some, you know, because he's in the ancient world, should we just approach Paul with chronological snobbery and say, well, he probably wasn't that smart because we've we've really developed so much 
from a psychological point of view that we know that anxiety is really complex and for Paul to just say don't be anxious is, is really naive? Is that what's going on here? No. Paul is not writing this from a you know, comfortable mansion on his iPad you know, that the, the church in Philippi bought for him. Right? Paul is writing this from a damp cell in a prison. His situation is, when Paul says don't be anxious... Paul is actually writing it in a scenario that is basically begging for you to be anxious. So Paul's not being trite. He's probably, I imagine him, you know, this isn't in the text, this is just my imagination. Like, I imagine him writing this with, like, a smile on his face. Like, I, like, I always knew objectively God's grace was good. But here I am in prison, free, and he's writing this now. It's incredible. Paul says, don't be anxious here in Philippians 4. Jesus said, don't worry in Matthew 6. So what's going on? Is the, is the Bible calling us to this impossible thing? Or is there something that we actually get to open our eyes to and open our hearts to and revel in and, and marvel in? Is the solution just to try harder? Hey, church, the Bible says don't be anxious. So today's sermon is 10 points on not being anxious. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't you know, wisdom in, in practical application. But if our practical application is devoid of redemption... It's not helpful, it's toxic. It's going to be burdensome. If, if, the answer, if the solution to don't be anxious was just like, you know, try harder not to be anxious, then, you know, it would be like, this, this would be a, a pretty burdensome year for you at Redeemer. Welcome to Redeemer. We're in a series called Stop It. And uh, after this series is done, I'm going to take you through another series in Second Opinions chapter 7 uh, called Cut It Out. And then after we finish the series on Cut It Out, I'm going to wrap it up with a 10-week exegetical study of what's wrong with these people, right? Like, that's where this thing would go if it was on you. But Paul's not inviting us to do something by the power of our will. Paul's actually inviting us into a spiritual renewal by the power of God's grace. Practically speaking, how do we do that? Look at verse 5, and what you're going to notice is there's this invitation to go to God with prayer, and then he uses a phrase, with thanksgiving. So there's, there's a direct connection between us going to God all the time and being alleviated of anxiety. But it's not in the way that we think. It's not that, hey church, it's all on you to go to God because in your doing, your anxiety leaves you. It's actually by going to God, God's the one doing the doing. It's that as we go to God, it's not that we're doing something. It's that we go to God and he is graciously doing something. So to the degree that I'm willing to constantly go to him is, is, is the degree that I am confessing that I'm not sovereign, that I'm not God, that, I'm, that I actually need to go to him because I'm anxious and I'm worried and I'm going through things and life is hard. And so in my going to him, there is this incredible grace and freedom that's actually available. And notice that, that there's this text with thanksgiving how do you go to god with thanksgiving when you don't have any answers because if you're going with thanksgiving you're still actually in the problem just like paul he's still in the prison nothing's actually changed he's not going to god with thanksgiving because he's out of prison he's going to god with thanksgiving when he's in prison and he actually has no idea if he's getting out of prison but yet he's thankful so how is that possible well when we're going to god with thanksgiving thankful for the assurance that god loves us thankful for the grace, thankful for the peace, thankful for the implications of the cross, thankful for the implications of the gospel. 
But this life isn't actually all that there is, even though everything around me is telling me that it is, that it isn't. And if I can go to God with a thankfulness, if I can go to God in smallness and approaching his greatness, there's peace to be garnered there. We're, we're, we're not, our thankfulness isn't presumptuous, right? It's not, I'm not thankful in prayer because I know God's going to give this to me. I'm not thankful in prayer because I know this thing I requested is exactly what he's going, how he's going to answer. It's not presumptuous. We're not, we're not going to prayer. Perhaps some of you have been raised like I was raised where the idea was if you don't go to God thankful, kind of confessing that the thing that you're asking for he's going to give you, then you've jinxed your prayer. Right? You've somehow, if there's a lack of thankfulness, you jinxed it. I mean, it's just not going to happen now. So you've got to just dance around and keep on, you know, being, you know, confessing this thankfulness for this very specific thing you asked for, as opposed to your thankfulness being very restful. But even if my request is not good or accurate, or you actually do the opposite of what I'm asking for, everything that I'm coming to you with, I know and I am thankful that your answer is perfect, that you are wise, that you are loving, that you are good. It's difficult for me in my humanness to, to just kind of relinquish that kind of control. But, you know, that's the prayer that Paul is praying from prison. That's what allowed for him in the midst of a situation that he had no control over to actually have peace. All of you are dealing with situations in your lives that you have no control over. Where is the peace? The peace is in going to God with thankfulness. And, 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 and that in that, he is going to do something. You are, every time you go to God, you are on the receiving end. Some of you have been raised with the religious idea that every time you go to God, you're on the active end. You're not on the active end. You're made of dirt. He's the creator of the universe. Every time you go to God, you're on the receiving end. Always. You've never once been on the giving end. So this invitation into prayer is this great gift of grace by which God can minister the truth of the cross that we know is objective, but make it experiential. Because Paul has both. We don't want to, we don't want to make experience, you know, a fleeting thing that's not valuable. Paul is experiencing the power of this grace that he knows is objectively true. Having said that, our experience and our emotive feelings don't make things true. Our emotive feelings don't tell us things are true. Our emotive feelings don't drive us into truth. They don't define truth. They're actually, the reason we have those feelings that Paul would have in prison is because the gospel is objectively true. And so we see this with him, uh, with Paul um, going to God in this way. And you you see in verse 7, it says, Paul says very specifically, the peace of God, it surpasses all understanding. So a lot of what I've said already this morning is counterintuitive to logic, right? Logic says when there's something horrible going on around you or in you, you can't have peace until it's gone. Logic says you can't go to God in prayer and logically have a feeling of, of, uh, that that stress is being alleviated and God's grace is giving you great strength even though you're still not healed, even though you still don't have the job, even though your marriage still has a lot of tension, even though your children are, are you know, there's still challenges, you know, relationally with your kids, even though the problem's still there. It doesn't make any sense to have peace in the middle of that. That's specifically what Paul has said. He's confessed it. It passes all understanding. And then look at the next phrase that Paul uses. It guards your heart and your mind. 
That's militant, right? To guard. Paul's writing from, a, from prison. He's well acquainted with what guards do. Nothing's coming in and nothing's going out unless I say it comes in or it goes out. That's what guards do. And Paul is saying that this unexplainable peace that doesn't make sense because your life isn't good because we live on planet Earth and there's things that happen. He is saying in the middle of that, God offers to guard through his peace our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This great and beautiful gift of grace. It's amazing. So, how do we enjoy this peace? If that's what it is, if the peace of God guards our hearts and minds and it's counterintuitive and it's surpassing understanding and it, and it comes to us as we go to God in prayer because God is a fulfiller and we are receivers, how do we enjoy the peace? When you look at verse 8, Paul gives us this big long exhortation to meditate. Meditation. And he says, whatever things are good and pure and lovely and of good report and praiseworthy. Meditate on these things. Now, we can take that and go, aha, well, great. Just find our happy place then. I mean, let's think of sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and healthy bodies and bigger houses and boats and cottages and boom, we're happy. That is not, there is no version of Paul in prison just thinking about not being in prison that's giving him peace while he's in prison. So when Paul's inviting meditation, what is it that we're meditating on? And then also there's some great wisdom for us here on the power of God's grace for us in this meditation. So you look at verse 8, he's got all this meditation, and what we find is um, that meditation is, first of all, what we learn in this text is that meditation isn't emptying your mind, it's filling it. A lot of our, uh, so different forms of Eastern transcendental meditation, a lot of the meditation that we talk about culturally is all about emptying your mind, emptying your thoughts, emptying yourself. But biblical scripture meditation is not emptying, it's filling. So what am I filling my mind with then? And there's a great invitation here from Paul to reflect on what the gospel, if you look at all of those things, what is praiseworthy? Okay, what's worthy of you to of what's worthy of you praising? Paul is inviting us into reflection on not only what the gospel is for us, Christ's perfect life that we could never live, his substitutionary death on our behalf, freeing us from our sin, his resurrection giving us hope that death is not the end, and his ascension, meaning that because Christ ascended, the Spirit descended, which means you have power in you, the power of God by the Holy Spirit in you and with you. What are the implications of the power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in you when the doctors have no answers? In you when you get denied to get into the program that you wanted to get into? In you when the business doesn't work out? When you don't get the job? When you're in prison, metaphorically speaking, power of the Holy Spirit in us, power of what the gospel is for us, frees us from the prison of tragedy, frees us from the prison of life on planet earth as a human being. This is what Paul is inviting the church to enjoy. See, we all have default meditations. If you were by yourself for an hour and I took your phone away, 
that would be enough for some of you to need detox, but, and me, probably, to need detox. But if you were alone for an hour with your thoughts, for a solid hour, your mind would go places. And for all of us, our minds would have a natural trajectory to go to a particular thing. And the longer that we meditate on the particular thing, it does something to us. What we want to understand about meditation scripturally, is that meditation does something to us. So what Paul is inviting the church into, as he's writing from this cell, thankful for God's scandalous grace that saved him, he's now experiencing the implications of that saving grace by realizing my meditation of the gospel, my meditation of God's love for me, toward me, regardless of the circumstance, that I might lose my head in this prison, I have no idea, but you want to know something? I'm free. I mean, that's a power that this world just quite simply cannot understand. That's why the peace is defined as surpassing all understanding. And Paul invites us into that through this meditation. Again, not just a religious exercise of us doing something, but this gracious gift whereby God does something in us. We can't get through life unless we know how to get through suffering on planet Earth. And all of us suffer. And we can't get through suffering unless we have God's grace. And so this meditation that Paul is inviting the church into is saying, think about God's greatness in your smallness. When our little bodies that are so fragile get sick, even deathly sick, The father doesn't jump off the throne and go, what's happening? If we look up from our hospital beds at our father, he's going, it's okay. It's all right. I've got you. This This isn't the end of the story. When we lose our job and we don't know how to pay our bills, when we're in high school and we're worried, I don't know if I'm going to get into university, or we're in university and we're like, I don't know if after I get out and I've got all this debt if I'm going to get a job. And I mean, there's a thousand things all day that make us go, God, and he's never jumped off the throne. Students, he's never looked at your OSAP debt and gone, whoa, oh man, did not see that coming. He's never, he's never looked at anything going on in any of your lives with shock and awe. God doesn't do shock and awe. God is the definition of shock and awe. And he invites us to find rest in his greatness through our smallness. And so when you look at um, verse 9, Paul does a curious thing here. He invites us into imitation. He actually says a bunch of things that for a lot of you have been in church your whole life, it probably may have resistance to because Paul invites invitation. He's like, hey, listen, these things you learned from me, you, you know, the things that you learned from me. And if you look at verse 9, you'll notice the verbs, right? Learned, received, and seen. Hey, these things do. These things practice. And all of a sudden, the, 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 relig- the religious part of our heart goes, oh, no, I knew it was all over. We talked about grace long enough, and now we're into just religious route. No, no, hold on a minute. Pa- let's unpack this here. This is laced with grace, what Paul is inviting us to do. He invites them into, into imitation. The religious idea about spiritual disciplines is that you do them to make God happy. But what we discover is that by doing them, Paul's happy. You see, spiritual discipline of prayer, meditation, sitting around your dinner table at home, talking about the gospel with your kids, well, that's not about making God happy. That's a gracious gift 
that's the greatest gift of the creator of the universe by which you can be made happy in the midst of torment and trial and prison and sickness and disease and poverty and oppression and cultural conversations about politics and economics and all these things that cause anxiety rise in us. God, God has given us these gracious disciplines of, of grace so that we can find rest and be happy. And so Paul invites the church. He's, he's in prison when he says it. Hey, imitate me, guys. And as you look at Paul's life, what do you see? You see that imitation under imitation is a new covenant idea. Imitation is a new covenant under grace, not law, practice. But imitation is not about earning any freedom. Imitation is explicitly for enjoying freedom. Paul is in prison enjoying freedom. Paul is in prison, but he's free. And so he says, guys, imitate me. I figured it out. Well, actually, I didn't figure it out. He uses the word learned, which means something came to me. You don't learn things on your own. You learn things because the definition of learning is that a teacher teaches you and you learn. So Paul, when Paul says, I've learned the secret, it's this gracious gift of God's grace that's given him peace in prison. I don't know about you, but I could use that in my life. I mean, I, 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 would, I could do with a little bit more peace in conflict. I could do with a little bit more rest when things are not good. And this is what Paul invites them into this imitation. But often the idea of imitation, it's also, you know, kind of offensive to our modern ear because we kind of say, well, you know, hold on a minute. Um, we, as a culture, worship at the altar of authenticity. So I don't want to imitate things. I want to be authentic. But ironically, there's nothing more mainstream, unoriginal, and common than trying desperately to be authentic. In fact, that, that's the oldest trick in the book. That's, from the, that's what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden, trying to be authentic. It's like, hey, enjoy the, enjoy the entire world, but don't touch that tree because that's the way for you to enjoy everything. Because you enjoy everything by knowing you're not God. And Adam and Eve said, well, that's not good enough. We like what the serpent said. We kind of like the idea of being authentic and being God. So we'll have this fruit. Thank you very much. So the idea of saying, well, no, imitation is just religious. Oh, we've got to be authentic. We've got to be fresh. We've got to be... is a weird way of thinking because that's the oldest thing in the book. What Paul says by imitate me is come into this place of resting in God's grace. Meditate enough and marvel enough that the gospel goes from being something that's objectively true that we agree with to being in our hearts as true that's actually we're experiencing and enjoying in prison, just like he is. Which is amazing, this incredible gift coming to us. And so when we, uh, when we look at this, we want to remember that Paul knew that Christ fulfilled the law. Paul was a law expert. So how was Paul meditating? All of his meditation didn't have, uh, all of his thinking about God's grace, all of his reading of the scripture, his prayer, you sitting around with your families, teaching your children so that as they grow, they can enjoy the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of grace. All of that is, is with the lens of enjoyment, right? not earning. Paul was a law expert, so all of his meditation was that Christ had fulfilled this thing. Christ had done everything. So we're not sitting our children around the, the table to teach them uh, to, to love God's uh, word and love God's law because there's any earning in it. It's actually, it's actually the, the form the pathway that their freedom is going to take as they all grow to go through life and have to endure suffering and have things catch on fire. How do they enjoy that grace? 
And this is what we see Paul uh, inviting the church to do. And then in verse 10, there's an interesting thing. Or Paul expresses in verse 10 that his hope is in Christ and not in the church community, but he's thankful for the church community. And don't let this little phrase get lost on you in verse 10 where he says, hey, I'm thankful to hear of your love and your concern, but you had no opportunity. Don't let that get lost because sometimes we can undervalue church and say, well, we don't really need to gather and worship. If I kind of feel like it, I will. In that, in that way of thinking, you know, you're God. You know, and you're gracing the creator of the universe with your presence when it suits your schedule. So that's weird. I hope we all agree on that. But the other ditch, if we were to swing to that one, uh, would be, uh, you know, the other ditch would be to overvalue the church and to, th- and to think that the church is our source of hope, that the church is somehow the hope of the world. But that's a radical overinflation of our own importance. And... You're setting yourself up for disappointment. If you enjoy coming to Redeemer because Christ is preached, that's a beautiful thing. If you, love, if you love the church, that's a beautiful thing. But if you worship the church, that's a horrible thing. That's idolatry. If you, if you love the church and you love the pastor, great. If you worship the church and worship the pastor, that's horrifying. You see what Paul has done here? Is his hope is not in the church. That's why he's like, he's writing from prison. He's like, oh, I'm so thankful for you guys. But imagine if Paul's hope was in the church. Like we do, uh, you know, our, we overinflate the expectations on the church. All the sinners sitting in here saved by grace. Paul's letter would have been different. I'm in prison. And how many times did John and, and Martha come and visit me? None. How many times did... And I mean, everybody in this building has a bad church story, right? Don't you? Everybody? Sure we do. Why? Because the church is full of people who need grace. Right? So if we overinflate the importance of the church... The moment that somebody in this room, starting with me, disappoints you, it's like, well, I'm not really sure. Your hope is Christ. Don't put your hope in this guy. Follow me around for a weekend and you'll be cured of any disillusionment. You'll be like, no, you know what? Uh, We better put all our chips on Jesus. And so the church, Paul loves. I mean, he laid his life down. Paul did. He got his head chopped off for the church. So he was like super serious about church. Not the, the act of, not, not the organization of church. I mean the people, the community, loving one another, right? Being members, to be a member of the church. To be a member means you're, min, you're ministering to it. You care about each other. That's what it means. And so Paul gave his life for that. But he didn't put his hope in it. His hope was in Christ alone. Which is important because otherwise, when we are going through suffering and we find ourselves in prison and the church doesn't meet our expectations, guess what happens? Right? We start playing the hiding game. And of course, nobody wins in the hiding game. Right? Because if you, if you decide, oh, I'm going through all this stuff, but nobody asks, nobody cares, nobody visits me, because all your hope is in them doing something. And what happens? You go, huh, I didn't come last Sunday and nobody noticed. Maybe I'll try two weeks in a row and see. You, know, and you start playing the hiding game, and guess what? Nobody notices. Do you want to know why? Because they're all in here grasping for the, the oxygen of God's grace for their own suffering. And it might take them three or four or six weeks to be like, oh my goodness, you know, where's, where's Frank? But Frank's at home going, I knew it. I knew that. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Fall at the feet of Jesus. Don't expect these other sinners in the chair next to you to be your savior. That's, that's not going to end well, friend. Don't expect me to do it. I mean, I try, and, and, and the interesting thing, too, about when we, when we do this, and you know, our hope and our suffering goes the wrong place, 
is that people can't win because some people do notice, right? You're like, oh, I'm going through this horrible thing in my life. I know a good idea. I'm not coming to church anymore because those idiots don't get the gospel like I get it. So I'm going to stay home because that's the logical thing to do. And then somebody notices the first Sunday and they call you. Hey, man, I didn't see you at church. Get off my back, bro. Get off my back. Don't be so religious. Just because I missed one Sunday, you're calling. So there's no way for anybody to win the hiding game once we get off the Jesus script, right? If I called you, let's say every Sunday you weren't here, I called you. Would you, be, would you think to yourself, oh, Paul is such a gracious and loving shepherd. Oh, I just love the way Paul shepherds me by calling me every time I miss a... No, you would not. Nobody in here would say that. They'd be like, dang, son, don't go to Redeemer. You miss a Sunday. Paul is counting noses. He's going home. He's going to call you. and like, hey, where were you? You know, that guy's got, that guy is the most insecure pastor I've ever met. He's just like, he needs all the butts in the seats. And if they're not there, he's calling you. So you wouldn't say I was gracious if I called you. But let's say it took me five weeks to notice you were gone. Let's say 10, because I'm really attentive to detail. So it takes me 10 weeks to notice you're not here. Okay, because I'm a flaming narcissist or whatever, and I don't notice it. And then I call you, hey, see, nobody's going to win. Paul in verse 10, he's like, hey, I heard of your concern for me and I love you, whatever. But then he moves right on to where his hope actually is. And so I, I, the reason I camp on that for a few minutes is because in all of our suffering, sometimes, sometimes we stop defining God's faithfulness by the cross and we start defining God's faithfulness by other things or other people and you're going to lose that every time. And you just got to fall at the feet of Jesus where the grace is and where the hope is and where this indestructible peace is is available. So I'm going to close with this. In verse 11 to 13, he talks about the secret, right? It all builds to this, the secret of this contentment. Listen to the freedom in his voice. He says, whatever state I'm in, I'm content. That's incredible. I wish I could stand up here and say, church, I've also found as Paul. (laughs) I mean, sometimes, and sometimes not. But Paul says, whatever state I'm in, and I can be content. And then he says, I'm on top, on the bottom, I'm healthy, I'm sick, I'm in prison, I'm free. My body's healthy, my body's riddled with disease. I've got a job, I'm broke, I can pay my bills, I've got to ask, you know, for benevolence. Because either case, right, Paul's got this incredible freedom. He's like, I'm free from all of it. I'm not a hostage to any of this stuff. And then he says the phrase that we've all heard a whole lives and it's been misappropriated a lot, lots. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. I can do freedom. I can do prison. I can do health. I can do disease. I can do churches, uh, you know, sending me offerings so I can eat. I can do broke churches that have no money and whatever. And I go there and hope that God feeds me some, some other way. Paul's like, I'm free from all of it. This is what I've discovered radical freedom as I can do all things. He's, it's, to, to say I can do all things through Christ is not a commentary on the excellence with which we do tasks, but it's the freedom in which we face circumstances. It's beautiful. It's powerful. I remember when I was in high school, in high school I played football and I used to write Philippians 4.13 on my wrist. 
And every time before they, I'd run a play, I'd look down and I'd, yeah, I can do all things. I can get first downs, I can score touchdowns, I can do that. But then you know what's interesting is that when, when, when I got hit in the knee and the ligaments separated from the bone and I'm laying in the hospital and the doctor's got all the bedside manner of a fire hydrant, so he picks up my leg and he goes, yeah, you're never going to play football again. And I crash into this like mini little depression. That's actually when I needed the, I can do all things. I can do all things in my suffering. I can do all things as I'm grappling for my identity as a, as a teenage kid who, my, my whole identity was the number on my back. And I'll, that's when I needed God to be like, I'm still actually in God's hand as God's child. But I had relegated it to the task. A lot of us have, have our own versions of that, of that story. And so that's why Paul says in verse 11, I have learned to do this. But he didn't learn through trial and error. He learned because it was a great gift of God's grace. Paul didn't solve an intellectual puzzle on grace and then go, ah, I cracked the code and now I have grace. It was that there was an experiential crying out in his smallness. So church, as you're going this, through this week in your smallness, in the stress, in the worry, whether it's in your body, in your family, in your life, corporately, in, your, in that smallness, cry out. Because in that, God is graciously coming toward you, giving to you, ridding you of that anxiety in his spirit, that that's renewal that is beyond what we can understand. So I have good news as I close in prayer. And it's that when you're going through hard times, whether you are battling depression or sickness or things are stressful at work or on campus, United to Christ Jesus, by grace alone, you are not a slave to the sinful disposition in your heart that's going to work overtime to locate something temporary and trivial to give you momentary rest. You are not a slave to that. The gospel boldly announces that because of God's love towards you in Christ and is now in you by the power of his spirit, you can have peace that passes all understanding because grace isn't a vague power that's objectively true for us grace is a person jesus who by the power of the holy spirit is comforting us let's pray